Welcome to this episode of Safe Home Podcast for struggling teens and their families finding their healing path. I am Beth Syverson, a mom of an 18-year-old son, Joey, who has been dealing with drug addiction, depression, anxiety, and suicidal ideation for several years. I am walking beside him as he struggles with his recovery while I work on my own personal growth and healing. Please note that this episode deals with substance use and may not be appropriate for sensitive listeners or younger children. So today's guest will be talking about her recovery from alcohol addiction, including some alternatives to 12-step programs that she's found to be particularly useful. Our guest is Reverend Jane Davis from Albuquerque, New Mexico. She's a community minister in the Unitarian Universalist faith, and she's a certified peer support worker, helping other people who are struggling with addiction to find resources and healing. Jane's a good friend of a good friend of mine, and I was inspired and enlightened when I first heard her story, and I know you will be too. So welcome to Safe Home Jane. Thank you for being here. And I would love it if you would share your story of addiction and recovery. Okay, thank you. Um, and it's great to be talking with you here today. Um, my story of addiction and recovery, I will, um, it, it's difficult for me to choose exactly where to start because I think maybe the um, some of the behavior started before I began drinking. But I will say, I will start with the the point where um, I began drinking. Okay. And that occurred right after college. And what, what happened was that I did not join in a lot of the drinking that goes on, you know, uh, regularly, maybe is expected to go on and maybe a phase that is, that is accepted in college. And I honestly believe uh, that I did that because I was afraid that I would, that it would be a problem for me. Um, I began right after college and it was uh, something that seemed to me now to be obvious from the start, because I remember when I drank, um, I relaxed. It helped me to be, um, much more comfortable in social settings. It, helped me just feel better. And it should have been obvious to me at that point that that was going to be a problem for me mm -hmm. because I really did. I loved it from the beginning. So I believe mm -hmm. that that was an indication that it was going to be a problem. That happened right after college when I had become employed and um, I was living in a large city in Chicago. And I found that at the end of the day, having a couple of drinks made me feel a whole lot more relaxed. It helped me to immediately um, feel like I was shedding stress. The other thing it helped me with was I'm an, I'm an extreme uh, introvert. I test as an extreme introvert. And it helped me to feel much more comfortable around people when I drank. So it just became something that was a very good feeling for me from the beginning. And very quickly, after only a year or so of what I would call controlled drinking, when there were really no real problems, it became a problem in the sense that I would drink and feel that I was having a hangover. So I did not feel comfortable when I woke up. 
and it would I felt sluggish and mm-hmm. and and so on. So that's when that started, and then it just became progressively mm-hmm. worse. And the frequency of my drinking increased. It started out with, you know, uh, I wouldn't start drinking until Friday night, and then it became Thursday night, and then mm-hmm. it became that I would have that I would drink every day, mm-hmm. um, and um, that went on for years with me telling myself that I didn't really have a problem because I hadn't experienced any of what uh, the 12 step program people will call um, the yes. I hadn't lost a job. I hadn't gotten a ticket. I hadn't lost a relationship where it was directly related to alcohol. A lot of those yets had not occurred. So Mm -hmm. um, I just said that I, you know, that I would have, I would drink less. I promised myself I would drink less. And that never happened. It was mm-hmm. always escalating. I promised myself that I would stop and I would stop for short periods of time. I don't think I ever stopped for more than 10 months. I don't think I was ever mm-hmm. able to stop for more than 10 months before I would mm-hmm. take it back up again. And it would quickly um, escalate to the point I was before where it was every day and it was having hangovers on the weekend and mm-hmm. finally got to a point which um, it became just uh, impossible for me to manage. And that occurred when I started to question, it was a midlife crisis, I think. There are mm-hmm. a lot of terms for it. Uh, Midlife crisis, existential crisis, whatever, in my 40s, I started to realize that a lot of time had passed and that I was getting to that point where there was as, um, it was as much of my life behind me as ahead of me. And when I started to struggle with that, I started to drink even more until I truly, truly lost control um, of, the, of the drinking. And at that point, was when it started to affect my work. Not in the sense that I would go to work drunk, but certainly there was an effect on my work because I would not feel well on Monday mornings. And I started to take personal time off in order to recover from hangovers and so on. And what was your work at that point? Uh, At that point, I was working as a mechanical engineer, but working with pumps and valves and nuclear power plants. So I was working in nuclear power plants at that point. And there is a no tolerance policy. So I, I owned my own breathalyzer and I would make sure that I did not go into work until I was blowing zero. But that does not mean there wasn't an effect. There Mm -hmm. were some Monday mornings were horrible for me. Mm -hmm. Because I had drank too much and I was in a situation of, you know, not being at 100 mm-hmm. percent. Um, and then I began uh, taking days off that ultimately got to a point where the only way I can describe it was that I forgot to go to work. I was struggling enough with the career and the midlife crisis and the existential crisis that I wasn't sure if I needed to change careers. But then there were several days where I didn't go to work and I didn't call in and I was released because I wasn't there. Mm. So uh, um, that is the way that I was fired. I now accept (laughs) it as having been fired. But I, for years, I said, well, was I really fired because I I just didn't go to work is what happened. And then uh, um, I I was subsequently fired. And that's when all of the 12 step thins began. That's mm-hmm. uh, that, that that was the loss of a job. 
Mm -hmm. Um, There are actually a couple of years of my life that I don't recall because I I didn't have a job. And I told myself I was looking for a job, but I was also drinking more and more. So I cannot totally put in place what happened during those those couple of years. I I would have to look. I would have to look back at a calendar and look at some of my documents and so on. But you were housed at that point, though? I was. You had a place to live and everything? Yes, yes. Um, I then uh, got a DUI Mm -hmm. and I refused to blow, which is an automatic failure. And I refused to blow because I knew I would not pass. Mm -hmm. I didn't blatantly refuse to blow. I made little excuses as to why, as you know, why I couldn't get enough breath into the breath. You know, I just, Uh, I just (laughs) delayed and, and wasted the officer's time to the point where they said, this is a refusal and put it down Mm -hmm. as a refusal. And I then over the next year, it wasn't more than a year where things just took an incredible dive, where I then got arrested for drinking on probation Mm. um, and some disorderly. My my, uh, partner and I got into disagreements and under the influence, we both drank Mm. under the influence and somebody called the police, usually one of us, the craziest thing. (laughs) We do the craziest things when you're drunk. And when you're, you know, when you're not thinking rationally. So I ma- I actually managed to get arrested several times for, um, you know, domestic disturbances and disorderly conduct and so on. Um, finally, uh, I believe the seventh time I had an excellent attorney who succeeded in getting me treatment rather than uh, continued incarceration, rather than repeat offender type charges that would have gotten me into a lot more trouble. And at that point, I got into a behavioral health program that helped me to go through treatment. And Mm -hmm. during that point, I wound up getting encouragement to move into a sober living house, which I did, Mm -hmm. which was in the Oxford house, which is self-supporting, self-governing, sober living houses. And I moved into an Oxford house July 3rd of 2012, and I have been sober ever since. I I got engaged with Oxford House and with that whole idea of self-help and realized that that was a group living situation with with self-help. And um, I had time to rethink uh, my next career because I made a decision that I was not going back into that career, back into engineering. And um, at that point, I then... um, went into human services and thought I might go into psychology. And um, after looking at ways to help people, I noticed a void in the spiritual support and decided that I would go into ministry. So I went into um, seminary and um, focused on healing, focused Mm -hmm. on studying how to help people with their spiritual development in in order to engage in healing and that's healing in general but of course i focused on recovery because that's uh where um the peer support i could i could apply the peer support concept and i thought that was very valuable because it was a a lot easier for me to relate to others who were in recovery from addiction Mm -hmm. that 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 type of healing 
yeah, so that's that's my story. I tried to condense it a bit because there, you know, it it was uh, it, it went through the you know the whole story lasted decades. Oh yeah, I I think your story is incredible because, well, a couple of things you avoided, like you said, the pitfalls of adolescence and the college years where people a lot of times will fall off the rails. Like Joey uh, started early, but you held on until another stressful transition from college to work. And I imagine as a mechanical engineer, it was very stressful and high, you know, responsibility, right? Working at a nuclear plant. So I can imagine that if you didn't have a lot of tools that you probably learned in seminary, that you would grab onto uh, something like alcohol, you know, people grab onto whatever, whatever will help them feel better, right? So it's understandable, but I think it's interesting the timing of your of your situation and and a bit unusual, don't you think? Do you yes. talk to most people? They start when they're kids, right, or college age? Most people that I work with now, yes, most um, uh, most started as children, as children yeah. and ad, yeah. as adolescents. Yeah. Um, hmm. uh, and what when when you were going through adolescence, were you super dedicated to school? What what pulled you through that part? Um, adolescence, it was distance running. And, um, there are a lot of, uh, there are a lot of theories of uh, addictive behavior. And I did that very much addictively. Um, it was, it became a a big part of my life. I don't know. I, it's hard for me to judge as to whether I did it uh, to the level Mm -hmm. of being dangerous, but, um, there, there is something now that I realize that just about anything I do, I do to extremes. So now I'm really careful not to start anything that I don't want, (laughs) you know, to overdo because I I have that tendency to overdo things. I, I, an intensity with things. I can totally relate to that. I, when you were talking about your relationship with alcohol, it sounded exactly like my relationship with sugar. I used to be a super big sugar addict. I could not stop. And I'd say, I'm just going to, I'm just going to eat less. I'm not going to buy this at the store this time, or I'm going to lay off. And then it just, I'm always back in it, but I, I got off five years ago, so I haven't had any sugar for five years. So it's much it clears your mind so much, but you know what? Then I, I've been a workaholic my whole life. So I and I've turned my sugar addiction into okay. I'm just going to work like crazy, like a crazy dog, and and just work twenty four seven. So I'm learning to moderate that too. So I I totally understand. We just people with the, that addictive drive will find whatever, <laughs> but ho- yes. hopefully find things that aren't completely devastating and life altering. Some substances are way you know, damaging than others, but yes, but and uh, an awareness of it now that uh, an mm-hmm. awareness of it helps me to not go there. And, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, there, there are lots of things that I've learned in self-help groups and support groups and therapy and, in in learning to provide pastoral care for others that help me to recognize that, that grasping, that needing, mm-hmm. you know, wanting something else, it's like a learning to be still. Uh, at younger ages, I had no uh, self-management skills in learning mm. to be skilled. So I was always chasing something, always grasping at something. And yeah, um, yeah. so th- that awareness and, and changing that is a big, big part of my life. Mm-hmm. So the adrenaline you were getting from running was like the dopamine you got from uh, alcohol. 
I wonder yeah. if it's similar. Uh, yeah. It's a, it's the the feel yes uh, the that feel the dopamine the feel good chemical mm-hmm. and, and and getting it out the the theory of course being is that when we get when we get it from something outside is that our body starts producing less so then we still we need to get more from outside and and that's how we go into extreme behaviors of mm-hmm. trying to get that feeling. Yep. Yep. Oh boy. Humans, we we do our best, don't we? We just, <laughs> you know, our body is trying to help. It's say, oh, you want more of that? Here, go get some more over here. But oh man, it can get us into so much trouble. So, uh, do you think you were uh, like a obsessive exerciser? I was that, definitely. Yeah, has that continued, or are you over then? Most of my obsessive behavior has not continued, and it's it's the awareness thing. It's okay. That I I can now uh, at at almost sixty, um, I can I can see the 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 obsessiveness coming. It takes a long time to get that awareness. That's that's great that you've got got it under control and and uh, have that awareness, and you can say, oh, I feel it coming there's something under underneath that right if you feel that that pull okay yeah i'm trying to cover something up or i'm avoiding dealing with something right so you go dig into that instead of just go grabbing whatever addiction is is rearing its ugly head right yes i want to i want to hear more about the oxford house i actually looked it up after you told me about it when we talked before i think it sounds amazing and joey does too he's actually started looking into it excellent but I had never heard of it before. So why don't you tell us what Oxford House is all about? Oxford House, it started in 1975 in Silver Spring, Maryland. And it was started by, I believe it was three people. And they were older people who had, you know, had some work experience, some life experience, uh, but were struggling with addiction. I believe uh, predominantly alcohol. And they decided that they even though they had gone through inpatient programs and therapies that they needed more support for longer. So they agreed to rent a house together and support each other. So they rented a house. Uh, I think the, the one of the primary um, he, he is now considered to be the founder. Paul Malloy was a lawyer at the time. Um, so they sat down and they put together house rules and guidelines and, and ways to almost like a covenant, I would say now, mm-hmm. as to how they would be with each other and how they would uh, make this work and help each other to stay sober for a longer period of time so that they could have a stable recovery foundation. Mm-hmm. And they put down requirements uh, like getting together to pay the bills, like everyone was self-supporting and self-governing. So the rules were the self-governing part. The self-supporting is that people had to work. And uh, at the same time, they decided it needed to be affordable because many of us have burned some bridges in terms yeah. of careers and jobs mm-hmm. and things. So they made it affordable and they, um, it evolved into um, a description of how large the house should be and how rooms would be either single or shared. And so that it would be affordable to people who may be just entering for the first time in the workforce or people like myself at that at when I was early in recovery, re-entering. And so, you know, you're not exa- 
Yeah, you're not exactly re-entering at, at the same income that you exited. Right. So, so um, sure. yeah, and that started out in 1975, and it is now international. Mm-hmm. And I believe 2,500 is the last number I heard. Don't quote me on that. The website will probably have better information as the number of houses that exist internationally now. Wow. So what is really great about the program is that alumni stay involved. I am still Ooh. involved in in the city I moved from in Kenosha, Wisconsin. I still talk to some of the Oxford houses there. And what I did immediately when I moved to Albuquerque was to get involved with the Oxford houses here. Ah, Uh, So, and that was, uh, it's always possible if there are beds available in a house and an alumni is traveling that they can get on the phone and get, uh, you know, get, get a, uh, a place to stay in that new city. Um, yeah. It was a great opportunity for me to engage with the recovery community here in Albuquerque by doing exactly that. I actually moved into a house for a short period of time and, you know, I wound up sharing some of the lessons learned from the Kenosha, Wisconsin houses. And I learned mm-hmm. some things from the Albuquerque houses. And I certainly learned the Albuquerque recovery community from that doing great. that. So. And it's quite a bit different from other sober living houses, which are usually for profit, right? And they have like a management, uh, kind of like I I think of them as like babysitters, right? Staff. There's yeah, a staff. staff. There is no. There is no staff. Yeah, in Oxford Oxford House. House. It's run by own. the members. Yes. It kind of reminds me of how Unitarian Universalist churches are run. Where, <laughs> you know, we don't have a bishop or a whatever. It's just you guys. Each church is on your own. Figure it out. Uh, I I think that is very empowering, though. And Joey loved that idea. He loved that idea of the people that are actually trying to recover are working together to to make it work. And yes, Uh, now in the same. So also similar to Unitarian Universalist Church, there is congregational polity in that the congregation uh, is is uh, the decision making body the same way the house is. But there is support um, Mm -hmm. in that. The houses organized into chapters, and then Oxford House Inc., a nonprofit, also provides. Uh, uh, I won't say an oversight, but certainly a consulting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's always possible to call someone from Oxford House Inc. Uh, the chapters, when when there are a certain number of houses in an area, then there are outreach workers who are trained by and work for Oxford Housing. So there's always support, but the idea is to uh, form this community where Mm -hmm. the house has a support system and people develop connections. Mm -hmm. The The whole idea of Oxford House is that something that has been brought up by a lot of dictionologists lately is that connectedness or connection is the opposite of addiction. So Oxford House was doing this before that Mm -hmm. terminology was used and saying we need to connect. We need to connect with each other. Mm -hmm. And that goes into that whole theory of addiction being trying to connect with something, connecting with something unhealthy rather than connecting with the spiritual or connecting with each other. Mm -hmm. Oh, that's so important. Well, that sounds awesome. So anyone looking for a sober living situation, but I suppose I think you have to be 18, right? You have to be an adult. Uh, I believe 18. And again, check the website, but 18 is the youngest that I have ever um, seen a person come into Oxford House. And I believe that's on the application. 
I think because uh, we looked into it for Joey and no one wants the liability of having a minor, <laughs> but now he just turned 18. So now we're, yes. we're looking into that. So, uh, so thank you for introducing that to us. And uh, while you're at Oxford House and while you're early in recovery, did you attend 12-step meetings or did you find other things right away or? I attended 12 steps because I, 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 I usually quote that that's what's for dinner. And yeah. that was when I was, when I was struggling and wanted support groups, that's all there was. And that's certainly all there was available consistently. Like mm-hmm. if I went to a small town for work, I could find it. I could find 12 step meetings. Mm-hmm. And if I went, you know, if I was in a large city, of course, 12 step meetings were quite often 24 seven. Yeah. Anytime you want to find a meeting. Um, so that's what I started with. And then quite often uh, there's a varying discussion about the legality of it. But um, I was court ordered to do certain things. And one of them was to go was to get self-help. And that that quite often turns into attending 12 steps because mm-hmm. that's what one can attend consistently and yeah. get sign off sheets and so yeah. on. But I found um, a lo- some of it was the religion part of the 12 steps, the references to God in the 12 steps. Some some of the, the traditions of 12 step organizations and groups where they say the Lord's Prayer and so on. Mm-hmm. I'm my theology is very liberal. Unitarian Universalism is a very liberal theology. Mm-hmm. So I had some difficulty with the patriarchal mm-hmm. uh, language and with the monotheistic theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started looking elsewhere. And I believe I was actually incarcerated at the time where I discovered SMART recovery, oh. which uh, SMART stands for self-management and recovery training. Um, very non-religious, not anti-religious, but non-religious mm-hmm. secular program that mm-hmm. is actually based on rational emotive behavior therapy. So it works with the, the an old stoicism concept of it's not a, the situation that bothers us, but our perception of the situation. Mm-hmm. So it actually works on self-management skills, which invariably when we are stuck in addiction, we are not healthy in terms of self-management. And, and quite often we don't have uh, healthy self-management skills. That's how we got into the addiction in, yeah. in the first place. So uh, smart recovery was just fantastic for me. It got, yeah. it, got uh, it got, it got, it, it was something that I could really internalize. It's something that I could use whenever and wherever I needed it. And it got rid of my excuse uh, for 12 steps. Some of it was an excuse. I was looking for a reason to not go to 12 step meetings and that, that any, any excuse would have done, but that was a pretty good one for me Mm -hmm. at the time. So that got rid of that. And um, I have since uh, attended 12 steps after that. There's a secular 12 step program here in Albuquerque that I've attended. I also started researching once I found SMART, I started researching other self-help type support groups. So mm-hmm. I became a facilitator for SMART. Then I became a moderator for Women for Sobriety. There's also a Men for Sobriety. I liked Women for Sobriety because the founder had a theory that women's recovery is different and that mm-hmm. what we actually need is to be built up first oh. and then we can work on the healing process. Hmm. So Women for Sobriety has 13 affirmations, which is designed to make the person 
look into feeling good about themselves and then to get to a a place where we will not hurt ourselves because we feel positively about ourselves. Well, that's much different than the 12 steps. 12 steps kind of break you down, right? That seems to be the process and that, and that, and her theory, uh, Jean Kirkpatrick, uh, the founder of Women for Sobriety, her theory was that women quite often drink because they feel broken down. And that we need to use a different um, Mm. theory or a different uh, precept or uh, underlying concept. And that made sense to me because, of course, I also noticed that the big book has the only time it really mentions women is the letter to the wives, the chapter to the wives. (laughs) So, you know, I was I was in that stage of, of finding anything wrong with the 12 steps that I could. So that's where I went. And I found some uh some very positive things about the affirmations. I still use some of the affirmations from Women for Sobriety. You know, I will be positive. Uh, I will live a positive life today mm. and things of that sort. Oh, I, I'm interested in that group. That sounds amazing. Are there any other alternatives to 12 Steps that you found? What, one more, which was uh, uh, Refuge Recovery. And that is a Buddhist based recovery. Mm. And the thing that really helped me most with that one is that in the self-help group meeting, there is a meditation. So there is a reading and the readings are based on Buddhist principles. The underlying theme being that we tend to spend a lot of our energy in life pushing things away or grasping onto things. And that when we learn not to do that, Mm-hmm. then we struggle less is that yeah. I, and I just I just really condensed that any any Buddhist would probably <laughs> not be too happy with me right now but it it is a learning to be mindful mm-hmm. and learning to be equanimous to not push things away to not pull things to us yeah. but to actually remain in the moment and it deals with a lot of relaxation, the meditation, for instance. Mm-hmm. Um, I still struggle with meditation. My mind tends to wander, but mm-hmm. I now uh, know that the goal is to bring it back. Mm-hmm. And I still meditate quite a bit. And that is very, very yeah. useful for anxiety. So I ran into refuge recovery when I was looking for that thing I was looking for when I started drinking is to mm-hmm. a way to calm myself, a way to yeah. be in the moment. And that's that refuge is is just fantastic for that. And that was that was the uh, most recent new group, if you will, new support group that I engaged in. And uh, I led groups in that for just a brief period of time. And uh, I will probably get engaged again with that. But that sounds really amazing. I've used a lot of the Buddhist principles for my own self to manage my own anxiety through this whole thing with Joey and it's helped so much because you can spend all your day either worrying about what's coming up or regretting whatever happened before and it doesn't help anything so more we can stay yeah that's right here god it's hard though that's a big deal that whole it took me years that I almost said years decades to realize that most of my concerns are about the past which I can't change Mm -hmm. and the future which may never happen the way I'm worried about it so (laughs) my worries almost never come true but usually something else that I didn't even think about is what ends up happening you know it could be something bad, but it wasn't anything that I was worried about anyway. So 
Just take it as it comes. <laughs> it seems like exactly. Better. The the yeah. worrying doesn't help because no. it's usually about something that doesn't happen that way. So it does yeah. does us no good. It's a waste of time. <laughs> um, now, uh, you are a certified peer support worker. What is that? That is a program that I am so happy to say has become very popular and is still growing. I first ran into it in Wisconsin maybe five years ago. And the idea is to train those of us who are successfully living in recovery, Mm -hmm. train us to help provide support for those seeking or struggling to live Mm -hmm. in recovery. So it has requirements like one or two years successfully living in recovery. And then there is a state-sponsored training, uh, which uh, deals with, you know, how to be a a good mentor, a good peer, mm-hmm. and uh, not not to be a counselor, but ways to walk beside someone in their recovery so that they have someone who understands what they're going through and someone who is also trained in what resources are available in the community to help that person. And so that involves, you know, some basic training and like motivational interviewing listening skills, mm-hmm. things of that sort, but very basic. It's, it's a short training. The focus is on, on being a peer to this mm-hmm. person who is now trying to walk the path that we've yeah. already walked or that we have walked further in. Yeah, I could see that. That would be so helpful to Joey right about now. Is that a national program or just in Albuquerque or? It, it, it's not yet national, but several states have it. I was okay. up here in Wisconsin and now different training program because it's state training. So uh-huh. I had to retrain for uh-huh. New Mexico and you could probably look up and find how many states are doing it. It's not, there's talk of uh, being able to get certified on a national level, which is something I wanted because I really uh-huh. didn't want to have to be trained uh-huh. again. Every when time I you move, yeah. States. But it's just a wonderful program. It's gaining popularity in many states. And and it is now being used. Like I work for a managed care organization right now. So there are peers who work like with with the incarcerated population, which is where I work. Mm -hmm. So I work with people seeking to be in recovery who are um, currently incarcerated mm-hmm. or or recently released from incarceration. Mm-hmm. But some of my coworkers work with people where they go to emergency rooms so mm-hmm. that when someone has been admitted uh, through an emergency room because of an issue with addiction, mm-hmm. um, then there's a peer to talk with them there. Oh. So there are there are different types of peer. Uh, um, positions where a certified peer support worker can be a benefit so that the person has someone there who's more relatable. Yeah. So you use your experience as a formerly incarcerated person to be able to, you know, have real connection with people that are currently incarcerated. Exactly. They really appreciate that. They do. It it makes the conversation go a whole lot uh, more smoothly and and quicker because most of us who have been incarcerated, social social stigma and so on, it's not exactly something we want to share. Yeah. But when we're talking to someone else who has been incarcerated, mm-hmm. then we you know we don't we don't 
you know, waste all of that yeah. energy hiding. You just go right to the right to the good stuff, right? You exactly. Get, get right to it. Yeah. Ah, that's amazing. How would somebody find either if they wanted to be a peer support worker or how would they find the support if they were looking for the support? What would they look up for that? If you just look up CPSW in most states, you will find something. But if you just, if you look up peer support, it's such a common peer thing support. now that if you look okay. up peer support, you will probably, uh, you know, you will find something. And if you have, if there is a local crisis hotline, they mm. will most likely know about it. Most states have some sort of a behavioral health department mm -hmm. that will know about it. Um, any human services organization. That's awesome. And is it uh, free for the clients or is it part of insurance? Or It's usually part of insurance. I work with the Medicaid population primarily, mm -hmm. and it is part of that program. Okay. Well, that's awesome. I will definitely look into it for Joey and I'll put the links to all of the organizations and programs that you mentioned, I'll put the links into the show notes. So if, if anyone wants to look up further, I'll have all the information there for you. Are there any other little goodies you have for us? Any Anything else that, that we've missed? Any other secret treasure <laughs> troves of recovery uh, goodness? I just, uh, I guess the thing, if, you, if, you, if I had to share one thing with people, even in short-term recovery, it would be engaging in service uh, that helped mm. me that helped me more than any anything else is engaging mm. in service work and that included you know volunteering as i was living in the oxford house and then later as i was reaching back and doing mm. service work for the oxford house but it's all a part of that connection the most significant thing i've learned i believe is that we need to connect. And if we don't connect with something positive, like other people and the spiritual, we will connect with something negative, something that has, that comes with baggage. Yeah. Yeah. And it's so easy. It's, it's everywhere. You know, the substances, the, all the temptations, they're everywhere. So you have to be really focused and uh, uh, trained really to avoid some of that, especially for adolescents and young adults that are super stressed out and just kind of grabbing onto whatever they have, if they don't have a lot of tools in their toolbox, it's very easy for them to slip into that. So, well, I am so glad you're out there helping in so many different ways. And thank you for helping us on Safe Home Podcast. Uh, lots of really great new ideas and things I had never heard of. So that's really amazing. So I really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thank you. It was great to be here. And if any of our listeners also learn new things today, listening to Jane talk about her recovery path, please share this episode in our podcast with other friends or family members, you know, who might have teens or other adults that are struggling with addiction. And you can find more about Safe Home Podcasts on all the social media outlets. And you can subscribe on YouTube. And you can rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. All of those things really help get the word out. Lastly, we do have a Patreon page. If you were interested in supporting us financially with a small monthly donation, Patreon makes it really easy. Just go to patreon.com slash safe home. Thank you everyone for listening. And we want you to 
Stay, stay safe. safe.